you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Glad you could join me today. I have four guests who will be here shortly. All four are highly respected attorneys. One is a return guest by the name of Matthew Ori. Many of you know him. He's been on three times now. I also have Preston Hayes, Barry Sarton Jr., and David Ordwan, who has worked with Matthew at AMO Title for about 10 years now. They're civil and criminal defense attorneys who offer litigation services to individuals and businesses. So in this episode, we focus on homeowners insurance policy holders, guys like you and me. But we also touch on insurance from a business owner's perspective. Matthew Ori and David Ordoin, as I said, have worked together for 10 years. Their practice areas are criminal defense, medical malpractice, and also personal injury. Preston Hayes and Barry Sarton Jr. are partners at HMS Law Firm, where they help clients primarily with business litigation, construction law, personal injury, and trial presentation. The first hour or so of this exclusive episode, we talk about Hurricane Ida, the recovery process, the importance of keeping a paper copy of your insurance policy handy, and also face a Facebook post that went viral across the boot. <laughs> that, that Facebook post accused a contractor who had come into the area to help people tarp their roofs. That person was accused of price gouging. So we give our opinions on that particular post, how to know if in fact you have been price gouged, And also we discuss when you should contact an attorney, like one of the four here today. A few of these guys joining me have filed class action lawsuits against Generac, which is the company who manufactures and sells the generators that most of us use. Many of us use to get through this most recent natural disaster. I know I did. And that most recent disaster is Ida, Hurricane Ida, of course. This episode is very serious in its subject matter, but you know me, I can't be all serious all the time, so we deviate a bit at the end. It's kind of a mullet that way. We're all business in the front and then a little bit of a party in the back end. I ask some fun questions, some Jeopardy questions that we've never done before. But for the most part, this episode is really informative. The way I see it, anytime you can get this much brain power in one room, You ask as many questions as you can and kind of get out of the way. That's what I did. If you're in South Louisiana listening and you happen to see these guys, if they're passing in a boat or getting a po' boy at Bubba's, please give them a dap and a thank you for sharing their insights. This is an important collaboration we do here today, and I really appreciate their time. So without saying, without further ado, let's go. Gentlemen, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming to the Big Easy. Thank you for having us, Brad. I've never done a podcast with this many guests. One, two, three, there are four of us. Two of you are going to share a mic. Are y'all comfortable doing that? Absolutely. David, 
you work with Matt, correct? That's correct. Been okay. working together for what, 10 years now? Something like that? Way too long. If I had to think through all of my buddies and just how, <laughs> I mean, the work ethic and the the demands that he would have on me, I would probably we'd probably get into it at least once a month. Do you guys get into it sometimes? Oh, I'd say at least, what, once a day. But, <laughs> once but, uh, a day. but I'm pretty easy going, so I get over it quickly. You know, Matt's a little more uh, hardcore, I'd say. Hardcore would be a good way to describe Matt. But Listen, people love him for that reason. Well, that's debatable, but David's passive nature has certainly kept our relationship alive. He's not passive in a courtroom, but business-wise, David likes to be in a courtroom. I like everything else outside of the courtroom, so it works together. I enjoy the courtroom, too, but he's a fascinated with the courtroom. I'm fascinated with the business side, and it works. You like the marketing aspect of it because you're on social media quite a bit. That's correct. You do a great job. And I like that audio. You're doing audio clips now, which is really cool. Yeah. Did you get that idea from me? I, I did. I was <laughs> going to give you credit just now, but she took it. That's fine. But I did get it from you. Yeah. And Preston, what kind of work do you do? You know, a little bit of everything, really. Um, hurricane claims, that's kind of what I cut my teeth on when I came out of law school. I came out in 2005, right, after Hurricane Katrina. In fact, my bar results were delayed because of the hurricane. And it was a question of whether or not we were going to have to retake certain portions of it, all of it. Uh, so it was kind of a strange time for me. But uh, thank goodness they found my bar exams, and luckily I passed. And uh, I came right out doing hurricane work and uh, some personal injury work with uh, a couple of good attorneys in Metairie. You guys brought a sub in case you need it? Two. Two subs. Okay. Do you mind introducing yourself? My name's Barry Sarton. I'm one of Preston Hayes' partners over at HMS Law Firm right now, and we're working with David and Matt. Uh, probably now about 10 years ago that we tried a couple of cases together for him, became friends. I met Matt through David. <clears throat> Fell in love. Know, yep, immediately. Even though, you know, I played at SLU and he played at Nichols, as did you. You know, we were able to get past that, and we became friends. We actually played against each other. We both played the outfield. That's right. Right? Yep, that's right. You know, I was on the bench. I actually partook in um, charging ALO. That's right. I remember and that. I got yes, fussed right. by my own coach, if you remember correctly. But. Yeah. So that may have been the only time in my career that I saw the mound charged. That was my role. I mean, I'm a freshman. <laughs> the, I had to do, some, mound? Well, do something. You know what I mean? Other than sitting on the bench, I'm coming out firing. I get fussed for it. And I'm looking at the coach. I'm like, how am I getting fussed for backing my teammates? I got fussed for everything. But here, there. here we are. Okay, so – you bought a house in Grand Isle not too long ago, if I remember correctly. I did. Okay, so Grand Isle, for listeners, is about two hours south of New Orleans. Is that fair to say? That's correct. Two-hour drive? Yeah. Okay, why did you buy a place there? Uh, my buddy, Jonathan Boudreau, and I had a place there. We wanted a place in Grand Isle. We thought the rental market you know, would be a really good idea. And plus, we enjoy Grand Isle. We didn't know how we are going to use it. But long story short, we got it. It was probably the highest camp on Grand Isle. And it highest? Is what does that mean? Our, our elevation from the ground. Okay. And it is now sitting on the ground. What do you mean sitting on the ground? It collapsed during the hurricane. Jesus. Yeah. It's been on national news, though, so that's been a plus. They they caught it in a drone, or like you could see it from up above? Yeah, initially it was drone footage that we got. I, I, somebody, maybe I don't know if it's from the governor's office, whoever went up, CRPA, someone, they sent drone footage, and I remember going through it, and John's looking at it. And it wasn't there. I'm like, man, I know the camp's there. And truly, it was not. It, it's on the ground. So we couldn't see the blue camp next to us, how we identify it, because that was on the ground to collapse. 
So it's pretty weird, man. I mean, look, this storm comes through, and after six, seven hours, you're starting to worry going, all right, we're losing some property. There's no question about it. But the fortunate thing is we lose property. Other people, you know, I mean, we're fortunate. Because other people lost property and had some bodily damage, I guess, is what you're getting at? Man, not just that, but you got people that are going there. They have no money for gas. They have nowhere to go. They have no house. So it's very humbling. Hurricanes bring Louisiana together. It's really funny. But it's I'll give you an example. I try and hang out with my parents, but things get busier the the older life goes. But you make sure, like, you you go back in time to make sure your parents are taken care of, to make sure that the windows are boarded, everybody's helping their neighbor. It's a really weird, eerie deal, but it truly brings people back. It purges some things. They come together. They rally. And you jump back to it. They're going to recover. Grand Isle is going to recover coming bigger, better, stronger, I guarantee you. We've talked about that on the podcast before. There's a book Sebastian Younger wrote called tribe and i don't remember the examples he gives specifically in the book but he probably gave this one if i had to guess which is when london was going through the blitzkrieg during world war ii when hitler and the nazis were bombing the shit out of them people had to go into tunnels like underground literally underground and when they surveyed these people months later they all to a man talked about how much they missed that time which is incredible but it, it works that way where you, you're going through the struggle, but you're right. It brings people together. And there, I say this a lot too, but there are no better people in the world. And I would know I've been a few places better than the people of South Louisiana. I truly believe that. Yeah. I can echo that sentiment because you know, where I live, I've got some neighbors. They've been there for about a year. Haven't really got to know them to really meet them, you know, besides just waving and Hey, how you doing? But the morning after the hurricane passed, it's a knock on my door at 6 a.m. I'm like, well, who could that be? Go to my front door. It's my neighbor and his son. He goes, hey, man, come on. Let's put your fence back up. I know you've got dogs. Let's go ahead and knock that out. We put my fence back up. We cut the trees. We ended up cooking together. So it really becomes, you know, like Matt was saying, it really brought us together. And in, in tough times, you know, the people in Louisiana really band together and we get through it together. Yeah, and I don't want to boast about generosity but like i'll give you an example the gator guy who was a guest on this podcast brian mcgee the uh, co-owner of gator coolers he posted on instagram and facebook that if you want to help monetarily you can send money to my personal venmo or paypal account my wife has a paypal you can use that and there aren't a lot of people that you would see that and, and just know it, the money's going to go to where it needs to be. And so I sent a little money. I sent this link to my mom and said, hey, this guy is collecting money on behalf of people who want to help who can't get down there. And sure enough, I've seen on social media that he's posting all these things he's doing for the community. So just some genuine, great people down here like you don't meet. Not to say there's not good people in other parts of the world, but Always making sure you got something to drink, something to eat. You know, there's nothing like an LSU tailgate on a Saturday. You'll stop at six different people's tailgate. They make sure you have a drink in your hand. It's, it's that kind of atmosphere. It's special. Well, look, and with him in particular, I can, I can assure I've had these personal conversations with him multiple times in the last 72 hours. Brian's not doing that for a show. Brian's using what Instagram and his social media, his following, his business, everything he's grown to help the town, the city, the parishes, the surrounding parishes. He hates putting that stuff up. He's not trying to say, look at me, look at Gator. He's generally saying, I got to use my platform. I've been blessed to get it. Mm. And I, I, that's a guy you can send $10 million to tomorrow. $10 million is going to be accounted for. Guaranteed. Fact. I met him at a closing table 
end up investing in his business because of my conversation with him in 30 minutes at that closing table. That's how strong I felt about him. I'm investing in a person there, not a cooler. Period. Love it. There was a big storm that came through Houston in 2001 called Tropical Storm Allison. And what they did after that was drew a bunch of maps with new 100-year floodplain zones and required you to get insurance, flood insurance, if you lived within those parameters. Is that something that they would do? I mean, a lot of people in the world think we're stupid for building in these areas, but don't sh- aren't you somewhat incentivized by what the federal government can do for you in those situations? So there's a perfect example. Think about Grand Isle right now. If you went and you saw there's camps that have been for sale for years. The reason they're for sale, they're not 16 feet or above. And if you're not 16 feet or above, guess what? You're not getting flood insurance and you can't have a mortgage in Grand Isle without flood insurance. Okay. So what does that mean? You have to put put the house on stilts that are 16 feet high? At minimum. Okay. Am I correct? It's not above sea level. It's... 16 I believe 16 feet is it. But it probably is above sea level, right? It's 16. I'm, I'm 99% positive. Okay, and that's really high. It is, but I'm, look, our, our one there just now is 23, to, 23 feet, I believe, from cement to still. So we were way above. We just don't quite know exactly what happened. I think we had a combination of devastating wind, devastating water, and it was a perfect storm for our particular camp and our location that it sucked at any, essentially. I mean, it's crazy. But you cannot, if you want a mortgage on a camp in Grand Isle, you have to build 16 feet or above or you're not getting insured. So when a storm like this inevitably happens, camps that have been sitting for a while, they may get damaged. Something may happen where they're forced to either, you can actually raise these camps or maybe they get bulldozed. And then the next person comes and they build up to code and it's it's just a better situation. Matt, I think you just brought up a great point about you're, you don't know whether or not flood or wind destroyed your property, and that's something that is specific in Louisiana's insurance codes to protect the insureds when you can't tell. So you and I were talking about all the things we've learned. If you're not learning right now, you are in another world. Hmm. I mean, we're making mistakes left and right, and by mistakes, you're realizing mistakes you made left and right. But what Barry's alluding to there is in Louisiana, you can't just take a flood mark. And they can't, the insurer can't come in and say, you know what, this is only flood damage, so here's your flood money, but you can't touch your homeowner's policy. Vice versa. If they come in and say the slab is at a 90-degree angle, you can't just presume that um, homeowners will cover or won't cover something. In other words, they have to look at everything, all the evidence that's possible. And it's our burden to put a prima facie showing that here's what we have and we make our claim. Now, what's, the- Sorry, what's prima facie? David... A basic showing, okay. uh, the first showing that, that hey, a loss was related to uh, the storm, okay. whether it's wind, flood, whatever the case. But David, you gave a specific example of a prima facie showing, which in this case, am I correct, is just simply stating, hey, guys, here, I'm putting you on notice. Here's my here's what I think happened. Correct. I mean, the prima facie showing in this particular case is we know we had a named storm. We know that in your particular case, there's a camp on the ground that historically was 23, 23 feet in the air. So you've made a prima facie showing that your camp was damaged as a result of a named storm. What's the relevance of the storm being named? Well, so policies nowadays, they're always changing. Uh, but policies that are being sold today, uh, it affects your deductible. So, for example, in my particular case, 
I may have a certain deductible for on my homeowner's policy. But because it's a name storm, my homeowner's policy specifically says I have a $1,000 deductible per year per name storm. So that could be very significant. Okay. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Matt, do you have something? <laughs> yeah, David's lucky because remember, these policies all differ. Some are lucky that say, look, your deductible, even if it's a name storm, is $1,000. My deductible on the camping grand out for a name storm is $22,500 because it's a name storm. Well, also, historically, these policies were being sold where it was a percentage of the value of your home. So in 2008, we were hit by two storms back to back in uh, the Lafouche Parish area. Well, I had a 2% deductible, so 2% of the value of my home. Three weeks later, a second storm comes through, causes damage. I had to pay two separate deductibles. Oh, so you don't, you don't meet your deductible for the year. It doesn't no, work that way. No, typically. no. That particular policy was 2% per storm. Which is why it's so important that we read our policies. Hey, I just wanted to, to backtrack briefly um, because I, I want, didn't want something to be overlooked. You asked the significance of buying in Grand Isle. The significance of Grand Isle is that is the last inhabited island off the coast of Louisiana. So it, it's of tremendous importance. Secondly, it's the only substantial barrier island we have left that protects the coastline. You said it's the, the last inhabited island. What does that well, mean? Well, if you go back, if you, you go back south or? off the coast of Louisiana, that is the only inhabited island we have standing in Louisiana. Oh, wow. So that's significant. And remember, it's a barrier island, so it protects our coastline. Lafouche Parish, it protects, even though it's Jefferson Parish, it protects Lafouche Parish. Lafouche Parish accounts for, I can't remember statistically what it is, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 25% of the nation's energy comes through Lafouche Parish, uh, through Loop, the, the Louisiana offshore. The whole country? Of the whole country. 25%? I, I may be off, it may be 20%, or maybe 18%. Either way, that's but astounding. It is, it is And astounding. a parish is a county in Louisiana. Correct. Same thing. Correct. Louisiana is the only state in the United States that refers to their counties as parishes. Put it this way. Whenever, whenever, and you're correct, you know, people in different parts of this country will say, hey, you're stupid to live that far south. Without the people who are willing to sacrifice and live this far south, Bad choice of words. Sacrifice is a bad choice of words because I love living this part of the country. There's not a better part of the country. However, without those people who are, who are living down here, the nation shuts down. Without our energy, the nation shuts down. They can't operate without us. The only thing I want to touch on there is I fish religiously, especially on these barrier islands. I can firsthand say when you're going west to east and you're looking at Raccoon Point to Last Island, to West Timbalier, East Timbalier, Fouchon. West Timbalier is, after this storm, I don't even know if it exists, 70% was lost after last year's storm. They literally had dredge to get on. They put the equipment on West Timbalier to start pumping. This next storm hits. East Timbalier is gone. Raccoon Point, still there. They rocked it. But even last island, so David's exactly right, these barrier islands are so important because it is our exactly what it says it's our buffer our barrier to protect us those are gone if you're not paying attention you're not watching what we're talking about in particular and most importantly is is the loop uh which is louisiana offshore oil platform so 
whenever these ships come in, these tankers come in, they offload into loop. That inner, that oil is then stored onshore in Lafouche Parish and then ultimately sent pipe to refineries. I want to say 13%, I think the testimony was in front of the Senate, 13% of foreign oil comes in through loop and something in the neighborhood of 50% of access to refineries. So we're the only deep water port in the southern part of the country. So most people nowadays have a copy of their insurance policy emailed to them. That's all you need, right, Matt? No. (laughs) And we're finding this out very quickly. How many people, including myself, we have multiple policies, don't have a paper copy of your policy in a safe place. We just went through 72 hours where you really didn't know what happened 10 miles down the road. I'm not exaggerating. And the first thing you're scrambling for is to go, oh, boy. Let me check my policy, make sure what's in it, what's my policy. I can't get in touch with an adjuster and tell them or an insurance company and, and put them on notice if I don't have my number. So one of the, the, the most simplistic lessons from this storm has been everyone now needs to take a step back, copy your policy on paper, put it in a safe place because it has been ultra helpful. Yeah, Matt, this is a very good point. You know, obtaining a copy of your policy has got to be like step number one. And I'm ashamed to say it, but if you asked me to go put my hands on my homeowner's policy right now, I couldn't do it. But you can reach out to your agent, your broker, and, and they can get that to you. You know, people may tend to think that your broker, your agent is a bad guy in all this. That's not true. You know, they, they can help you walk you through the process. They can obtain the policy for you uh, and also help walk you through steps to to make sure you you put the insurance carrier on notice and that's a very important point that matt touched on is you got to provide your insurance carrier with prompt notice after you have a loss okay so when a hurricane comes through like the named storm that we just had hurricane ida when is the best time to give notice to your insurance company as soon as you can after the loss i mean i get it you're more worried about your family you know your businesses your employees those are all things that go through your mind first but when the storm passes and you can secure your family, secure your property, those days after the, the storm, you should give the, your, your insurance carrier notice. A lot of insurance policies require prompt notice or reasonable notice after you have a loss. So, again, that kind of goes back to you better get a copy of your policy, read it, and see what it says because there could be some deadlines. Every policy is a little bit different. They can be unique. But generally speaking, you're going to have to give prompt notice, and you're going to start having to provide proof of your loss. Okay. And on average, would you say you have 30 days, 60 days? I would do it within 30 days. You know, usually, um, you know, I would prefer it be given within a week. And just notice what we're talking about. Notice is just calling and opening a claim, calling your agent, calling your broker, having them assist you in putting the insurance carrier just on notice that you've had a loss that you believe is covered. And at that point in time, you usually get an adjuster assigned to your claim who will reach out and set up an inspection so they can get out, inspect your property, and start the adjustment process. Okay, I had two roofs replaced in the last year. And each time I had my general contractor meet the claims adjuster at the property. And both times, not only was the roof covered entirely by insurance but there was enough money for me to get the entire interior of the house painted and i attribute that to 
his being good at what he does. He has strong interpersonal skills, persuasive skills. And so I will never, so I had him do it a second time, I'll never have an adjuster out to a house that I own without my contractor out there to meet him. And that's a good practice, don't get me wrong, but I think you're going to find in the world we're living in now in South Louisiana, it's not practical. It's tough to have a contractor meet an adjuster out there. Because we're because so overwhelmed? We're so overwhelmed. Okay. You know? And sometimes adjusters just show up you know, with a little, little notice, right? Yeah. So it's tough practically. Um, I mean, my advice is to always cooperate. You probably have a duty in your policy to, to require you to cooperate, allow them access to your to your property. But I think it's important that you know your policy, you know the terms, you start to look at what exclusions might apply, and start from day one building your claim. Because it, it is, the way it usually works is at some point in time, you're going to have some disagreement along the way with the adjuster and what you believe your loss to be. So it's important to always start you know, building your claim at the outset. And even though you may not be able to have the adjuster and the contractor meet, you know, I, it's a good practice to, like you're saying, have a, 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 you know, a contractor you trust at some point in time, come out and look at the loss and make sure, you know, you're being treated fairly. But you're touching on building a claim. Explain what you mean. Are you talking about documentation, photographs, inspectors, yeah, engineers? That's a good question. But there are different types of claims, right? You have a homeowner's claim, which we've touched on. There are flood claims, and there are business claims. They're all a little bit different. The most nuanced, the most complex are the business interruption, business income loss claims, because the type of documentation you're going to have to gather there is going to be much different than just a property damage claim. You know, outside of you know, get your policy, putting the insurance company on notice and cooperating, you need to start taking photographs. You need to start gathering your, your financial information if you're going to make a business income loss claim. Gather the documentation. Get with your office manager, someone who's who regularly deals with your, your financials, and start putting together a claim as far as what you believe your loss is to be. On the homeowner's side of things, it's important to take photographs. Um, I can't stress that enough because you're going to have to prove the type and the nature of damage because sometimes you get into a situation where uh, the insurance company may say, well, this is a flood loss and we're not going to cover it. You may take some photographs of a damaged roof, uh, ripped off gutters, some evidence that's going to show, no, you had wind damage. So it's very important to document your losses, especially when it comes to taking photographs. If you can preserve evidence, if you're in that position, uh, shingles blown off your house that you collect from your yard, any, anything that you can use or you believe you'll need uh, to show you had a covered loss. Okay, so because you guys were coming... I actually took some shingles and moved them. Should you treat your home like a crime scene and not touch anything? Well, you know, I wouldn't go that far, you know, but I would preserve it. In other words, I get it. People want to pick their yards up. They want to get back to normal uh, after a storm. You know, if you have the means and the ability, you know, I would, I would store those. I would take pictures, but no, you can pick things up, but I would just make sure I, I would document that process. Save all emails, all texts. Build your record if you need it in the future. Once you get the insurance person on the phone, should you have all your ducks in a row? Or is that when you're asking them, hey, do you need video from me too in addition to photos? I think, I think you, you ask them whatever they need from you and you do your best to provide it. Uh, on the way here, Matt was, was riding with me. I heard him on the phone with his adjuster. Uh, and Matt says, hey, I got 
We sent up a drone, so I have pictures of the top of my roof. I can show it to you. The guy says, hey, great, that saves me. I can't tell you how much time. Send me that footage, and, and I, I can get on your claim right away. So the more information you can provide them in the form of pictures, videos, uh, anything that makes their job easier, they're going to be much more happy to help you out. That's exactly and, and right. Great point. Yeah, I, I think I would echo that and say that you, know, you should try your best to cooperate. And in most policies actually require you to cooperate with the adjustment of the loss. So, you know, I, I think that's the better move. And if you have any questions, of course, you can always call an attorney and say, hey, what are my rights? What are my coverages? That may come up. But I think cooperation is key. Also, just to back up, you talked about, hey, can I pick things up or should I treat it like a crime scene? What I would say, too, is you have a duty to, to you know, mitigate your damages. In other words, if you can tarp your roof after a storm to, to save some of the interior, uh, your furnishings, I think that, you know, you should generally do that. You should take every effort you can to mitigate your damages and, uh, and make sure the loss isn't greater than it, it should be. Matt, you told me earlier today that you have a duty to mitigate damage. What does that mean? You just, so in, in layman's terms, a duty to mitigate means minimize damage. You've got to give every effort possible. For instance, if your window blows out, put a board on it, seal it. The best that you can. If you have a roof leak, put a tarp on it. If carpet is wet and, and water got inside, you can pull that carpet. I would photograph that. I would video it. I wouldn't throw the carpet away. I would put it in the backyard. But remember, if you don't mitigate and all of a sudden mold starts growing, they're going to use that against you. You have an absolute duty to do everything possible you can to minimize the insurance company, their loss. You and I were talking the other day, and think about this. Someone may charge you $750 to tarp your roof, right? Do you realize how much that could save the insurance company? Thousands, 10000 20000 And by the way, the insurance company, because of your duty to mitigate, has an obligation to pay for the roofer who tarped it. I love this idea of separating yourself. Who do you think the insurance company is likely to help first if you approach them saying things like, I mean, I know you guys are overwhelmed right now. If we can save you some money on my house, I mean, they're going to take your call. They're going to move you to the top of the list. This is why interpersonal skills, communication skills are so important. So damage control, paying for things like tarps. People don't have any idea how much it should cost to tarp an area that is about 30 shingles, let's say four feet by five feet. So we had a situation the other day. We had a leak in my baby girl's room an active leak. It was raining. So we get somebody out here and I would normally get a price quote before he does the work. But in this situation, I'm actually the tenant and the landlord had communicated with this contractor. So he does the work. He was here about 15 minutes, he and another guy. As he's about to leave, I say, hey, Johnny, I need a receipt. And he goes, oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. The landlord told me that uh, they need a receipt so that they can get reimbursed by insurance. And my first thought was, ah, they probably shouldn't have told him that because if he thinks he's getting reimbursed by insurance, he can charge whatever he wants. Not only that, but he's already done the work. So he hands me a receipt. He was here 15 minutes. Guess how much? Thousand bucks. $800. Close. So the next morning, somebody in Thibodeau posts a picture of a contractor with a Houston area code and just MFs this guy to death. I don't, if I were him, I probably wouldn't step in Louisiana again. The post last I saw had 
over 500 likes and people were joining in the MF of this guy. And it was about an area, I presume, about the size of what we had covered here. And he was charged $575. Do, do they realize that that guy is sleeping in people's parking lots with no place to go, no air conditioner, and he just probably saved the insurance company Ten thousand dollars? Does that ever cross anyone's mind, or you just think he's an out of towner and he's poaching? And he drove from Houston, which well, you and I have made that drive many, many times. It's not scenic; it's six hours. Were they on that roof? Did they have proper topping material? Being insured and bonded. Now, one thing you did mention: it was an out of town contractor from Texas. Um, people around here in Louisiana are going to want to check with contractors, especially for the major work they have done on their homes. You want to have a Louisiana licensed contractor and the Louisiana contractors board has a website that you can log on to and put in the information for your contractor. That allows you to check and make sure that your contractors that you hired are licensed in Louisiana, bonded and insured. You're going to want to make sure you do that before you have somebody do any major work on your house. Now, putting up a tarp, that might not be necessary, but doing major work, you want to have a Louisiana licensed contractor. Well, but I wanted to, to also talk about that. Uh, you talk about putting up a tarp. Be very careful whenever you're presented with a contract for that tarp to go up. Uh, these contracts have assignment language in it. These contractors are... Uh, requiring that you sign a contract that says, once I put that tarp up, you have assigned your rights to your insurance claim to me, and you're also agreeing to pay me. The, the problem is the contract's blank as to what that amount is, but they're going to negotiate with your insurance company. They're going to come up with a figure to replace your roof. Uh, if the insurance company ends up backing out of that deal or not paying the full amount that they claim is owed for the roof replacement, you become personally responsible. So be very careful whenever you sign a contract to have your roof tarped. Uh, they're asking you to, to sign off much greater rights than just that. Well, this fellow wasn't even going to give a receipt. So there was nothing signed. In fact, when I called the landlord, he told me that he didn't know whether they were coming to diagnose or actually fix the problem. He could have charged whatever he wanted. I, I Googled it, and I realized that these are unprecedented times maybe not completely unprecedented but obviously a, a devastating time most of us shit all of new orleans was without power what it said when i googled it to tarp an average size home which nowadays would be about 2200 square feet the range that was given on the first search result on google was 200 to a thousand dollars that's my point these are unprecedented times. This is a, This goes back to the last island hurricane. I mean, think about this. This is potentially, we don't know yet, maybe labeled a Category 5 when all this is said and done. We don't know yet. One way or the other, as devastating essentially as it can get to us, I'm not that offended by somebody who charged $600 or $800 to tarp a roof in times of peril when I have no tarp, I have no contractor, I have no one to help. And they're living probably without electricity and have their own homes to worry about. And so if they can come out in short order and do this for you, yeah, there's some, some value there. What's hard is that as a user of Facebook, you don't know if somebody's gouging you or not. And so you get this viral post, and now everybody's calling to 
curse out the the contractor when they may have actually done something right and you should be grateful you just don't know and so that's part of the problem right now people have no idea what it costs to tarp a four by five foot area of their house people have no idea how much it costs the insurance company on the back end and how grateful they are that someone tarped it and they have no idea that people are sleeping in our parking lots our commercial parking lots as contractors workers roofers literally sleeping in their truck i'm watching it i allow it why wouldn't you that's another great point so when the landlord called the insurance company they said 800 oh great i'm glad you had it done yeah we'll reimburse you for that that's the whole key of this whole point understand you have a duty to mitigate right which we've talked about and understand the insurance company is more than happy and actually has to pay for that they're not going to fight you on it so stop worrying about the gouging and get it fixed by the way when he says something like that the insurance company should you immediately say can i get that in writing and what constitutes writing would be an email I do. I think that everything should be either email, and if there is, I want confirmation that it was received, or text. I mean, we're in a digital world right now, but if that's not working, then you get a hard copy of a receipt. The first 72 hours are probably difficult, so at least get something in writing in the form of a receipt that says this was done, because clearly the proof is on the roof that it was done. But again, the insurance company is not going to haggle with you whether you torped it for $400 or 1000 to be quite frank. You have a duty to minimize damage. And you said earlier, you can go as far as ripping out the sheetrock if you suspect you have mold in your house. So don't rip the whole sheetrock out. Rip the, cut the, cut the head off the snake, right? You rip the sheetrock out right there. You photograph, you video, you show where there's water damage. Cut that piece out. That's okay. You're not going to get uh, chastised on the back end because you minimize your damage. To the contrary, again, you have a duty per your contract to minimize it. So minimize it. So to answer your question, I spent yesterday morning ripping out sheetrock in my house uh, because mold started to form, and I need to make sure that I can get out as much moisture as possible. Mm. Now, you can't be sure, though, that it is mold, right? Pretty certain from science class of that. Yeah, that was mold. (laughs) It was certainly mildew. (laughs) The reason I ask is who can verify that it's mold? Because not everybody can, correct? They're absolute experts in this field. And more importantly, most of these policies are going to have some type of cap on mold coverage. I wouldn't run around saying mold, mold, mold. Mm. That's not helping you with an insurance claim whatsoever because the cap is minimal. There's, you know what I mean? Mm. You're not helping yourself. But if, like David said, if you see it, cut it out. Your whole roof's not. And if you are, you're flat out lying. Be genuine. Don't, don't. Don't abuse the system. There's going to be more insurance fraud than you can possibly imagine. There's the guys who wanted to renovate their house and that are praying for something like this. Do your homework and make sure you're doing it properly and minimize the damage to your own house by cutting out the mold. At what point should you contact FEMA, if at all? FEMA can be contacted right now for multiple reasons. Barry just pointed out that FEMA is, offers a program where they will come and roof. I mean, time is of the essence. But they'll pay for that. FEMA has, I believe right now, every Louisiana resident can receive $500 who's been affected. They want you to file your claim first. But if you filed, you can subsequently file with FEMA and there will be more money to be had. And what is that? FEMA.gov? And does it, does it interfere at all with your insurance claim? If the insurance asks, have you contacted FEMA? I don't know what kind of questions they ask. But should you volunteer that information? The website for filing your FEMA claims is going to be disasterassistance.gov. Disasterassistance.gov. And we'll put that in the show notes. 
So, Barry, are you penalized if you come and make a claim with FEMA? Is that going to jeopardize any potential claim that you have from your insurance company? No, but you have to be careful when you're filing your FEMA claims. The government asks you for information about what insurances you have, and you do need to be accurate in what you report to FEMA. There are rules that FEMA cannot duplicate payments that insurers would otherwise pay. So you have to be honest in the FEMA application because if you tell them you don't have insurance, they pay you some money that your insurance would have paid you otherwise, and they find out later you're going to be subject to FEMA coming back, asking for that money back, and potentially saying that you tried to defraud the federal government. Yikes. So important to be honest when it comes to insurance. I sold real estate for a lot of years, and on the seller's disclosure notice, one of the this is in Texas, one of the questions they ask is, have you ever filed a claim for with your insurance company and received money that you didn't use for the intended purposes? If you get caught lying on that seller's disclosure notice, you guys know better than me, but I wouldn't want to mess with any of that. So be upfront, be overly honest. It's so important. You just don't want to run into a problem 10 years from now because of some something stupid that you overlooked so document your conversations follow up with an email per our discussion that sort of thing what about when you have no visible damage should you still have somebody come and inspect your roof after a storm like this i would think that that all your fasteners vinyl siding metal roof all that is compromised by winds in excess of 90 miles an hour that's science so i think it's very important to have even a structural engineer this is very rare times Everything gets compromised. There's no question about it. And remember, the whole point of this is to have your home in a pre-storm manner. Condition, yeah. Right. I mean, that's the whole point of, of, of your insurance claim. You don't want to settle for anything less. But And going back to what you just mentioned about the disclosure forms in Texas and how you had to say that you had spent the insurance money on the repairs, FEMA on a lot of these grants that they will give you if it turns out you were uninsured or underinsured and they help you out and you get a grant to rebuild your house, those grants are typically grants that you do not have to pay back to the government, but they will require you to show proof down the line that you use the grant appropriately. That happened to a lot of people after Hurricane Katrina who got the grants, didn't apply it to their properties, and years after the storm, the federal government came and started sending letters out saying, give us our money back because you didn't spend it on what you said it was for. Yeah, that is one institution you do not want to mess with. They have the power to garnish your wages, correct? That's correct. Uh, okay, so if there's no visible damage, you're saying possibly contact a structural engineer. So in Texas, when you're buying a house, if you hire a real estate inspector, which you should do in what we call the option period, which is the usually 10-day period that you have the unrestricted right to terminate for any reason. Now, you pay a little bit of money for that, but who you get into the house as soon as possible so that you have a full seven or eight days to negotiate repairs, who comes in is somebody that is a mechanical and structural real estate inspector. That's what he does. And then you'll also want to get a wood-destroying insect inspection also. Are you saying that a real estate inspector could do what you're asking? Is, is that who you'd contact in this situation? I wouldn't particularly contact. Some real estate inspectors do not want to get involved. They're scared to get sued on the back end. But a structural engineer, and we're talking about no visible damage, a structural engineer, and I want someone, I want a certified roofer coming up absolutely and checking because 
there's just it would be really uncommon for nothing to be wrong or that new roof that you got a year ago now acts as if it's an eight-year-old roof. Those things can be detected. You know, and people going to come, uh, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, but estimates. So we get to this phase and someone gives you an estimate. Do not get worked up. It is exactly what it says it is. It's an estimate. That's where the fight begins, potentially. Not all the fights, but there's no need to get worked up on an estimate or when someone comes in and, and inevitably what you're going to hear from an adjuster, oh, this was a pre-storm condition. Well, then I want to ask the adjuster, where is his inspection of my home prior to prior the storm? To, because yeah. I would love to know. Yeah. How do you know? Which speaks to the importance of taking your own pictures beforehand. And maybe that's one of the lessons to come out of this. If you didn't take pictures before the storm came, make sure you do that now for the next one. That's a good point. Uh, you know, um, we never want to think the worst could happen, but you kind of have to prepare for it, right? I know, like, for every hurricane, I video the interior of my home. I video the contents. I video the outside because I don't want there to be any question about, you know, what I have inside my home or what the condition was outside. Now, I may be overly cautious because I'm an attorney, but I think that's a good practice. And it's going to come a time, let's say there's a catastrophic loss where your roof blows off, you lose some contents, there's floodwaters. If you try to recreate what you have in your house from a contents list, I guarantee you're going to miss some stuff. But if you have a video app, you know, a video pictures of the interior of your home, you can watch it after the storm. If you've, God forbid, had a horrible catastrophic loss, you can go back and say, oh, well, that's that set of chairs that I had. Oh, well, that's that table. All the little things add up and... If it's a covered loss, you can be compensated for it. So I like to take the pictures pre-storm to help you jog your memory as to what you had in the event of a, of a catastrophic loss. Yeah, and there's probably something you can do to make it official, like send it via email to someone, right? That way they couldn't say, well, you just dated this, you know, whatever day. Well, nowadays, if you take pictures on your iPhone, it'll have the date. But you see what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. hey, honey, I'm just taking these pictures so that we have them and... It has a date on it. Absolutely. Emails automatically do that. And if it's a newer home, you can always check Zillow to see, uh, uh, not built, but something I bought. My camp, for example. I can go back. We already did on Zillow, and I can see exactly every picture before that was taken and what it was. Well, I'm curious. What are you going to do there? What happens next? It's total loss. Total loss. Absolutely. So they're going to write you a check? You don't know? We'll see. Jesus. But you're not losing any sleep over it? No. You're a better he's, man than he's me. He's going to find some good attorneys, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know one or two? I think we got a plan. All right. Do you need a forensic accountant for any reason? I think it's a good point in time to jump into the, the business side of these claims because what we just talked about, homeowners claims, property claims, we've given some good bullet points. The, things get very interesting as a business owner. These are the claims that insurance companies will fight you tooth and nail. We're lucky to have teamed up with Preston. These guys, they've litigated these exact claims. We have experience in it as well. Preston have taken this a, a substantially a bit further and actually ended up in courtrooms with these exact claims. And they will be able to tell you so many loopholes here, how they're going to defend these cases. What is a business loss claim or contents covered? Most people don't even know. So I think now the most valuable part of this for people to listen to will be this portion of this podcast when we talk about how businesses are affected and how they navigate post-catastrophe and get back to normal. Okay. So before we get into the business side, is there anything that you, the, the insurance 
expert wanted to add about homeowners? Well, I think we've hit all the major points with homeowners and a lot of those same points will apply to the business claims, right? Like get your policy, you know, prompt notice, things of that nature. But there are more, there is more types of coverage under a property risk policy uh, for a business. And look, we're talking about business income loss, business interruption coverage, and that takes on sometimes a life of its own because there are several different types of potential business income coverages. And just to be clear, the business interruption, business income loss, I'll refer to it as BI coverage. Okay. There's not a separate policy for that. It's usually rolled into your, your all risk or your, your property coverage for your business. Okay. And there are several triggers. And when I say triggers, depending upon your policy, because a lot of policies are different, different terms. So it's, again, important to read your policy, know your policy. If you have the means, talk to an attorney about it because, you know, there are pitfalls and loopholes that we'll get to later. But it's important to know those at the outset. Okay, let me interject there because one of the questions I was going to ask about homeowners policies is at what point do you should you contact an attorney? And I want to know what it would cost if if Joe D'Antonio called a an attorney's office and wanted help looking at their policy just to help interpret some things or, hey, what's in here? How much would that cost? Well, Well, generally for us. If somebody says, look, Preston, I just need some help. Can you look at this policy for me? I'm not going to charge people for that. You know, I'll, I'll look at their policy and I'll say, hey, look, you've got this coverage, that coverage, but be aware you have this particular exclusion and here's a, a pitfall I think you may need to be aware of. I, you know, I, I generally provide that type of service to clients or potential clients uh, you know, free of charge because I think it's an important, it's a very important step in presenting their their hurricane claim you got to know your coverages you got to know where you're going with it from the outset it's really no different than a car accident claim we do our best to stay out of a property dispute right we want them to be paid in whole into who's them our client potential client whoever's seeking our advice the best thing that can happen is they ultimately compensated justly for what they lost they put it back into the property in pre-storm condition let me tell you though That ain't the case always. In fact, more than that, here's how it goes. My adjuster is a dick. Seriously, that is half of our claims. If the insurance companies would just be cordial, we probably wouldn't have as much business. But truly, that's our position. I know David would say the same. I watch him work every day. We don't generally charge people on property claims. Now, if it's going to go down, if it's a fight, of course, we jump in. You're much better off with us than without us or whoever it may be, as long as they're qualified. But to answer the question about property, we are trying to stay out of that with, we'll help. But we want you guys as the holder to recover in whole at, to every extent possible. But we know what happens with these business claims. It's a whole different animal. What you're talking about, forensic accounting, is highly involved. There are different formulas. I don't care if you have quarterly P&Ls, which mean absolutely nothing. Frankly, your bank statements don't really help that much. They will if they're in the hands of the proper accountant, forensic accountant, who actually deals with insurance companies on the daily. Is there typically an arbitration clause in a policy? There can be. Um, You know, it just depends upon the particular insurer. Uh, We've seen those. Uh, um, Sometimes there's a challenge to it, whether or not it's an enforceable provision. But you see that. And if we have to go through arbitration, that's fine, too. It's not that much different than having a judge. Same time frame is usually involved. But, yes, you can see arbitration clauses in insurance contracts. Let's dig into this 
business interruption insurance that you mentioned. I know there's two types of business insurance, right? Can you talk about the two different types and how they differ? Well, there's there's multiple ways you can have coverage for, for BI, BI coverage, right? The first way, the most common way, is a direct physical loss to your building structure. If you have wind damage, your roof's ripped off, uh, that is usually the trigger for business interruption coverage. You know, that's the easiest way. That's the most common. You can also see coverage, what's called contingent business interruption coverage. And what that is, is maybe your structure, your business itself isn't damaged, but maybe your supplier, you know, if, if you make sausage and the guy you buy your meat from, uh, if their plant's damaged by a covered loss, then in that scenario, you could have contingent business interruption coverage. Same thing with your clients. Let's say you have clients and they've suffered loss. Because they suffer loss and your clients can no longer you know, access your services, that could be another trigger. I wouldn't want that job. That claims adjuster. He's got to go see where the sausage is made. Nobody well, wants to see well, you that. You see, that's how it can get complicated. <laughs> You're right about that. But that's how it can get complicated. You know, there's service interruption coverage. Uh, some policies are written in such a way that a business interruption claim can be made if the power going to your building, no damage to the structure, but power going to your building is interrupted. Um, you know, energy can't get it back on for a month for whatever reason, poles are down, etc. That can be a trigger. So that kind of gets me back to what I was saying at the outset. It helps to have a set of eyes on it who's done it before, who's seen, who's seen it, and can tell you what triggers you have and maybe what things to stay away from when it comes to exclusions. So is that the next thing people should be concerned about, business owners? Number one, obviously, is the self, the, the safety and health of your employees. That is number one. Absolutely. But what's next? I think it goes back to the, the, same, the same steps you should take if you have a homeowner's claim, right? You get your policy. You put them on notice. You cooperate. You, you communicate, preferably in writing, with the insurance company. But as far as the, the business interruption claim... You need to talk to your office manager, whoever does your books. You know, make sure you can secure those documents. If you have P and Ls, invoices, uh, a lot of times if you if you hire a forensic accountant, which you know that's the best way to do it. You hire somebody who's familiar with it. I know when a client comes to me and I'm going to handle their business interruption claim, one of the first things I do is I pick up the phone and call the forensic accountant, give him an idea of the type of loss, and he can give me a list of the documents that he'd want to see from this particular business owner. So uh, that's a very important step for the business owner to already start gathering all of his financial documents and set up a process to gather those and to communicate with whoever does his books, office manager, et cetera, to make sure they understand and he has an idea of what the world of documents are and start to gather those. But Mr. Ori told me that a P&L was worthless. <laughs> the reason a P&L is worthless is because I can make a P&L up in 10 minutes right here. A loan, standing loan, a P&L is garbage. Yeah, yeah, for whatever it's worth, the, the P&L is fine, but you know, nine times out of ten, the insurance carrier is going to require to see some backup documentation. The documentation that went into creating that P&L, expenses, you know, your rent checks, uh, you know, invoices, you know, accounts receivable. Those are the kind of things that you know make those numbers on the on the P&L sheet. But they're the backup documentation that you're going to need to have to prove up your business interruption claim. I've heard you talk about the importance of, of how you characterize your losses. First, what does that mean, characterize your losses, and why is that so important? Well, at the outset, 
you have to know your exclusions, right? So you don't want to be talking to your insurance carrier saying, yeah, I think this was all caused by flood. You know, you're not an expert, you know, so be careful with, you know, making those types of arguments. You don't know your coverages. You don't know what exclusions are in your policies. Because they'll use it against you. They'll use it against you. So nationwide is not on your side? In some instances, they're not, (laughs) you know. But that's why I say know your terms before you start talking to the insurance carrier because there are some things you may say inadvertently that they'll use against you later on. They'll come back Jeez. and say, well, Mr. Ori told me the camp was knocked down by you know a 30-foot surge of water. So why are you making a homeowner's claim? You know, So you need to be careful. You need to style your, your, your claim correctly. And I think before you start making those representations to insurance companies, I think you should seek you know, legal counsel to at least advise you of what coverages and rights and obligations you have. I have read a story about a court case here in New Orleans where a hotel operator was forced to shut down following Hurricane Katrina. When they contacted this little boutique hotel here in the French Quarter, when they contacted their insurance company, they were told, yes, your hotel was shut down due to the hurricane, but even if it hadn't been shut down, the rate of, your, the rate of occupancy at your ah. hotel would have been significantly less because there would have been reduced tourism in New Orleans overall. Absolutely. So they were trying to avoid paying what were they trying to do? Why that, were they giving pushback? In that policy, I think there would be what's called a loss of market defense. And basically what they're arguing is because the damage was so widespread, it effectively removed some of the market for that business's goods or services. What they're saying is, okay, even if you weren't damaged, damaged because the market has changed and because the market has changed, you didn't lose $20,000 a month. You may have lost nothing or you know, substantially less because – Market conditions change. Think about it in the car accident world. It's the same type of deal. David and I went through a particular case where a client gets smashed by someone from the back. Guy was going around 90 miles an hour. Our client's at a dead stop. Because of that accident, our client, who had never had an opioid issue in his entire life, developed a substantial opioid issue. Don't you know that the defense company decided to use that against us? And all of a sudden, our client was a drug addict. Forget the fact that your client caused a wreck that put him in this predicament. That's the type of stuff that you'll deal with. Well, guess what, guys? I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Physician. You know what? Everybody had to evacuate so you wouldn't have made any money anyway. Or some are going to say that COVID gave you these extraordinary numbers, meaning revenue. Some people were destroyed by COVID. One way or the other, either COVID helped or it hurt, but they'll use it against you. I promise you. That's an excellent point, Matt. I mean, I'm sure in the aftermath, there will be arguments that, well, COVID either inflated your numbers or your loss isn't really caused by the hurricane. It's because of COVID and nobody's using your business anymore or to the extent they would have. So those are all things that, and that's what makes the BI claims a little bit different because there are these different factors. I'll give you another perfect example uh, of, it's just not as simple as looking at P&Ls and saying, well, I make $20,000 a month. And now I'm only making, you know, $2,000 or I'm making nothing for three or four months. The issue comes up when you have multiple storefronts. You know, maybe you have a storefront down in Houma, Louisiana that is closed, roof was ripped off, an obvious business interruption claim if you have that coverage. But let's say you have another storefront in Covington, Louisiana. And because that one's open, people may have evacuated there. That one did a ton of business. And it made up for the losses in Homa. 
So they'll try to play that game too where, okay, yeah, your home storefront wasn't open, but you went in Covington, did really, really well, so it offset it, you know, it offsets your loss. So those are all things that kind of come up and we see in arguments that are typically made by insurance companies when it comes to business interruption coverage. I was telling David on the way down here, a particular restaurant in Homa received their product. Uh, they subsequently lose the product in the storm, about $60,000 worth of product. They have been denied coverage already because the power lines were overhead, not underground. Now, this is someone who ensured that you're telling me you didn't send someone down, an inspector, someone who took all the pictures in the world, who didn't get their feet on the ground here. You insured this policy. You insured this business. And you didn't know power was overhead? Come on, man. That's the type of games that we're going to play here. And I, I sit back and we don't need an attorney. You may not. I hope you don't. It's just not the case. You know, there's there's other things that, that I think we can expect, and we saw it before, uh, maybe not in the hurricane context, but uh, during BP. So if you recall during the, the BP spill, uh, federal government came in and they shut down drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. That was 2010, Deepwater Horizon. But whenever the government came in and they shut down or prohibited drilling in the Gulf for a period of time, certain uh, certain businesses supply vessels, for example, uh, were, were prohibited from making claims under a traditional BP model because BP's defense was, hey, we didn't shut you down. We're not the ones who prevented you from going out and working. Blame the federal government. They're the ones who, who put this moratorium in place. So those were things that an insurance company or a defendant in that particular case was using as a defense. So I can, I can foresee... Uh, an insurance company coming forward saying, if you're a restaurant owner, if you're a certain business owner, hey, don't blame us. The government came in, LaToya came in and put a curfew in place. LaToya Cantrell is the mayor of New Orleans. Correct. And I'm picking on her. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just using that as an example. But, you know, they're going to use civil authority saying that there were, there were curfews in place that affected your business. There were things that the government did that affected your business. And it wasn't anything related to this storm. Uh, those are the types of, of things they'll do to deny claims, to deny coverage. And for whatever it's worth, I'm glad David brought that point up. There is a specific type of coverage for your business interruption claim called civil authority. And there is a specific coverage that provides that if by order of the government you're shut down, you're entitled to your business interruption claim. So, again, it's, I, you know, it's like a broken record, but you got to read your policy. you got to know what's in there. Uh, because most people, you know, I'm guilty of the same thing. You don't look at it until you have a loss. Now it's like, uh-oh, let me go see if I've got coverage. So there are various ways you can have coverage, and there's various defenses that will get raised, like David's talking about, to try to avoid pain. I didn't mention this earlier, but the two roofs that I've had put on houses in the last two years, those roofs were about 15 years old, and I tried to add another house to the policy and they told me that they now depreciate roofs so I would likely be responsible for a third to 40% if something were to happen in the next few years and I'm like shit <laughs> but I was I was surprised that they replaced the entire roof and all I had to pay was my deductible it was a 2% deductible uh, so I think it cost me $2,500 it's a $150,000 house something like that Look, and that's the thing, too, we're saying here, there's some awesome adjusters, there's some awesome insurance companies, there's some fantastic brokers, you know, right now is our Super Bowl. 
We're here for the bad seeds. We have tons of bad seeds in our profession. They have bad seeds in their profession. There's different carriers who who understand, hey, this is private money, and we got to protect it. There's others who are very generous in the situation. So what we're saying is do everything you can to settle these claims. Do it the right way. Maximize your recovery to the best of your ability. But not everyone's a bad guy. We're not here to say that whatsoever. We're here for the 10% who are about to get screwed. Mm. Fact. What happens when I pay my premium to an insurance company? They can invest that money, correct? Absolutely. How do they invest it? I have no idea, but I know it is, it's 100% mega business, and they're ultra successful. They're always profitable. Don't ever forget that. Meaning, so your broker's your friend. I've heard this a lot. Well, my broker, he's my buddy. Fantastic. Your broker has no authority whatsoever over the monetary value of your claim. So do not be mad at him. We covered that. He, all he can do is potentially harass someone to get you to adjust his claim. And I'm not belittling. That's their job. Their job is to be the middleman, to shop your rate, and the good ones do it. Their job is also right now to be there just to listen if you need to. Do not take off of town right now. You should be working 24-7. One lesson you have to learn from this storm is pay attention to what's going on. You're watching the brokers who are killing it right now. They are working their ass off. There's other brokers who are nowhere to be found, which is incomprehensible to me. Even if you have nothing to tell them but to just talk, it feels better. Even if you get that text from them at 7 in the morning that says, look, man, I just found your policy. Here it is. That's important. That's all you can ask. But at the end of the day, understand they have no control over that check that's going to be written to you, and they probably want you to get $10 million. You know what I mean? Like, they're not against you. Yeah, they want happy clients. Right. So don't be a dick to them. That's so frustrating me. My broker. Well, I understand if your broker answer the phone, but your broker can't control the amount of money they pay. At the end of the day, this is about their bottom dollar. Not they as in the broker. They as in the company. This is big, big business. Off subject, the patient compensation fund, David, how much is it in there? I think it starts with a B, over a billion dollars. Think about that. We're jumping scales here. Medical malpractice in Louisiana. Everybody gets mad. You know, plaintiff lawyers. Why don't you talk to your, why don't you talk to your, the PCF and say, guys, how is it you have a billion dollars in your fund right now? Maybe you are paying too much in premiums. I'd be pissed off at the who I'm paying this to. Who has a billion dollars? The patient compensation fund. And where, what is that comprised of? Well, we kind of jumped topics and jumped off of uh, hurricane claims. But in Louisiana, medical malpractice claims are capped at $500,000. So a quick synopsis of that is an individual physician or healthcare provider, if they chop off the wrong leg, for example, of a professional baseball player, their exposure is only $100,000. So Wait, why 100 and not 500? Well, because because the patient's compensation fund would be responsible for the next $400,000, but the claim itself is capped at 500. There's exceptions to that future medicals. But let's say you had a, a $20 million contract as a professional baseball player. Uh, you lose out on that $20 million, and the cap is 500000 You do not recoup that lost income. Now, so every time a physician or a health care provider pays a premium, a percentage of that premium goes to the state of Louisiana. It's managed by the state, and that goes into the fund. That fund right now is over a billion dollars. Think about that. All right. So it's been the same cap, by the way, since 1974 or 76. Uh, it has never gone up. Think about that. Our, our state government, our, our legislative body, decided in 1976 
that $500,000 was a reasonable amount of money to compensate somebody. Which is probably two, two and a half million in today's dollars. Correct. No inflation. But it has never been adjusted for, for inflation. Yet the physicians, and I, and I do have some sympathy for them, and, and I, I use that term loosely, but I have some sympathy for them in the sense that they're paying these premiums. They're paying outrageous premiums that's going into this fund that will never be depleted. Ever. No, not with that much money. Well, that's the <laughs> that whole That could point. be invested conservatively and do pretty well. The whole point of this conversation is the fact that this is insurance in general is gigantic business. Don't ever, ever forget that. All of my, my dad is a physician. Most of my buddies are physicians. Again, they have bad seeds just like we do. I do have sympathy for them. My question is, why in the hell aren't you looking to the person you're paying it to and questioning why they have a billion dollars in a fund and you're still paying to it and that monthly amount? Or yearly amount, I should say. You know what I mean? That is outrageous to me how no one's questioned the insurance company there going, how the hell do you have all this money and why do I keep paying the same premium every year? Same principles apply here, man. This is giant business. Well, insurance companies, they need to pay celebrities to do commercials. I mean, Aaron Rodgers needs a job, or at least he needs a second job. Did you see any lack of Aflac commercials lately? Or Allstate? You know what I mean? You never will. So Geico changed the game when they started paying a lizard <laughs> they weren't going to pay like drew Brees. Right. but warren buffett a lot of his wealth was generated from owning insurance companies well absolutely but but you know you you bring that point up uh nobody seems to criticize the insurance companies whenever they have the aaron Rodgers of the world on tv making commercials for them but boy an attorney who advertises they're sleazeballs aren't they mm. yes we're sleepballs. Everybody's got a market. It's crazy when I tell my doctor, I told my buddy to come see you when he was having trouble. Oh, thank you so much. And it's like, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> you know, but they, <laughs> they got a market. They need customers or patients. Well, look, man, you're gonna, we're, we're, we're going to get the calls or we're going to get the, the gesture that we're vultures or whatever it may be. Maybe, maybe if you want to look at it, that fine. But I can tell you this, you hate us till you need us. And by us, I'm talking the profession in general. You know, it's just fascinating to me how much hate we receive, yet we're fighting for the little guy who's getting screwed for profit. You know, this is off topic, too. We collectively just filed a class action against Generac, and the message has been mixed, right? It's been a situation where um, some people think, oh, that's great. You know, we're happy somebody's out there fighting for us. Uh, other people call us vultures for it, you know, but... Um, Everybody has to make a living, but I, you know, I enjoy my profession because at the end of the day, I think I get to help people too. So we have a Generac generator that worked tremendously well. We ran it straight for five continuous days. When I finally got around to changing the oil, the power came back on, but we had a good experience. What, what kind of experience are they having with Generac that would necessitate yep. a lawsuit? Look, and there there are good Generacs out there. Uh, my dad has had one, and it ran all during the storm. You know, he did the maintenance on it. It, it ran well. The ones that we really filed or we targeted in our, our class action was those that were brand new or recently installed and either didn't turn on or ran for maybe a couple of hours and stopped working. Then, you know, these certified techs would come out, and for various reasons, they're talking about defective parts, and that guess what? you can't get a part for another six weeks. Well, you bought that generator for this purpose. It's not a car. I don't use it every day, 
but it needs to work when I need it to work. And a lot of people paid a lot of money for those to, you know, keep their refrigerators running, keep their, their children cool, you know, keep their house in order, and they failed. Well, and they, Preston, they based their decision to stay on this Generac. Literally, most families. And if you're going to tell us we're vultures for coming after someone who's paying less for parts, maximize profit, that doesn't offend me. That's wrong. That's every single person who paid 5000 or $8,000 for a generator that failed them. Not all are going to fail. There are people, there was a lot of human error. There's no question about it. There's also a lot of error with these parts. That's not fair. That's not how this works. This is fighting for the little guy where you get to come in and say, because you chose to maximize profit over the performance of your machine, you now will pay. Yeah. And, and Matt's right. They, you know, People base their decision to stay in Louisiana because, you know, and ride the storm out because they said, I've got a generator and, you know, it's, I'm going to be fine after the storm passes. You know, I don't have to worry about losing all my, my, my refrigerated goods. My family's going to be comfortable. Um, they based that decision and they suffered because of it. And those are the, are the people that, you know, we want to fight for. You know, you, you talked before we started this, you said, talk about personal things that happened to you. Uh, so my generator fell. Now, I didn't include myself in the class because my generator is too old in my estimation, okay? But we made a decision to stay in Thibodeau and ride the storm out because I had my wife's 92-year-old grandmother, who, by the way, celebrated her 92nd birthday during the storm. That's What's her cool. name? Uh, give Ida. give, her, uh, a, give, give huh? her a shout-out. Well, that's Ida. Okay, not Ida. 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 Happy birthday. Gigi. So, so Gigi celebrated her 92nd birthday in a house where she thought she had power uh, we're, we're running off of windy units and look I'm, I'm pleased and happy that we have windy units because a lot of people have have things much worse off than we do uh, but my generator failed within a day and a half or two days of the storm passing a few days go by I get a telephone call somebody saying our brand new office is on fire it's it's a generator Matt had installed that's smoking that thing lasted what two less, days but less than than 15 hours total in that unit i would say 15 hours the next day the electrician came out uh, his biggest complaint that he saw from everyone generics he was going around their oil pressure switch was faulty and he looked directly at it and said i guarantee i know what this is he points at it boom sure enough that's a problem so i have a part coming from alexandria tomorrow that exact part which is 17 dollars can't find it anywhere but that was the cause of my whole machine that I bought for this exact reason. Wrong with remote server. We're good to go. We have multiple offices. But I want to be here right now running this thing, and I have to wait until tomorrow now. So two days, less than two days, it, it failed me. The important thing for my, uh, in my mind was, again, we stayed with Grandma. We thought it was safer to stay at home rather than get her on the road. What if we got stuck in traffic for 10 hours? So we thought we made the safe decision. We didn't. It was a terrible decision. We were lucky the outcome ended up being okay. But think about all those others who, who the outcome's different. You know, think about the people who are insulin dependent. They need their refrigerators to work. Their refrigerators fail. Their medicine's no longer any good. That's uh, awful. You know, you're risking these people's lives. And by the way, the warranty... None of us. No one who owns a Generac. I don't want to hear that this is not supposed to run for two weeks. What do you think we bought them for? I understand the human error component. I understand they need to be serviced. I understand oil needs to be added. But to sit here and tell me that you're going to misrepresent. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question this way, Brad. If, if I told you your Generac would only work for 
uh, 12 hours and you need to shut it off for six and it may work the next day, would you be less inclined to buy than when you go with the intention of a home generator, an in-home generator, that you would think is exactly prepared for this situation? Not everybody's an engineer. Not everybody's a mechanic. Not everybody's savvy with changing their oil. That's part of this. So if, if you're going to do that, tell them before the purchase. Don't hand them a pamphlet after the purpose with this micro lettering and, and that you need glasses to read that states what could happen. That's BS. You need to represent that before, not after. And you'd know dang good and well if you did that, your sales would have been cut tremendously. You don't buy them. I don't need a generator for three hours. Let's be real. What, what, what is that going to do for me? I need a generator to keep my office or my home or my family running. Yes, it needs to be serviced. There is no excuse for you putting cheap parts on a machine to maximize your profit. That's not going to sit with any of us. I'm prepared for any comment you can bring and tell me what you want. And I'm going to go fight for all the people who spent their hard-earned money on these machines to be failed immediately. Yeah, they're not cheap. How does the layperson decide whether or not to become part of a class action lawsuit like this? Well, the way a class action works, and um, be clear, it's not a true class action until the court certifies it as such. So we filed a, a petition or a complaint for a class action. At some point in time, we will ask the court to certify it as a class action. And if the court does that, then there will be notices that go out, and you are in the class if the, the class is going to be defined, you know, approved by the court, if you fit the definition, you are in the class unless you opt out. So at some point in time, people will receive a notice and they can make the choice for themselves. They can see what type of, of claims we're bringing, what type of relief we're seeking, and that would be in, in a class action notice. That's what it's called. They can look at it and read it and then make the decision for themselves. Do I go it alone or is it better you know, to go as a group and stay in this class or do I opt out of it? Okay. No other requirements, nothing else on the part of the layperson who's sitting listening to this and realizing, well, shit, my Generac went out. It's beneficial for them to sign up for the class, but really at this point in time, that's that's all required of uh, you know, providing the information to either us or, or other lawyers, whatever the case may be, about the nature of the failure of the machine, uh, knowing the, the serial number, the data was installed, the age of the machine, all those things are very helpful to figure out if you fit within that defined class. That's a very good point because you certified as a class action, there are certain things that we have to prove. Okay, one of those things is numerosity, meaning that the, the, the class is potentially so numerous, it's beneficial to bring it as a class action uh, as opposed to an individual action. So we want to hear from people. You know, if your, your product failed, we want to know. You know, uh, because it helps us, A, gather data and understand why they fail. Because the truth is, I think from what we've heard so far, multiple parts have failed in these generators. So I'll, I want to hear from people. I want to know what their experience was like. And it also helps us gather data to help prove our, we file a motion for class certification. It helps us prove the elements that we have to prove to get the case certified. Okay. So talk to me like I'm five. Do you get a third, fourth phone call and say, okay, we have a class action sort of situation here? Is that how that works? No. I, I, you're getting that third, fourth phone call in rapid succession. Uh, you're starting to think in the back of your mind, boy, what's going on with this product? And let's take it away from Generac, just in general. What's going on with this product? And then you start hearing more and more stories. All right, so uh, the court's not going to certify a class over four or five claims. They're looking to see, is this, is this 
this failure predominant um, within this product. Uh, they're looking for hundreds, if not thousands, of, of affected individuals for it to be certified as a class. So I guess to answer your question in short, three or four is not enough. Uh, what the magic number is, uh, I guess, depends on the distribution of that particular product. But if you have a significant percentage of those products or that particular product failing, then you know you got a class. You know, as it relates to Generac, uh, of course, we were getting phone calls from people about the product failing, but then you get some, like, I guess, anecdotal evidence that, you know, the tech that came out and looked at it said, this is the eighth one he's seen today, or everybody's having this problem. It's producing the same error code. And you realize that it's kind of mushroomed and everybody's having the same problem. As an attorney, you go, wait a, wait a minute, this isn't a one-off. There's a problem as a defect with this product everyone's experiencing the same thing and the more and more you dig you realize it's it's pervasive and how does your compensation work on something like that uh if the case is certified as a class action the defendant will be required to pay our attorney's fees and for whatever it's worth it, you know even if not uh, part of the claims that we brought is a redhibition claim and I, I won't bore you with the, the the legal mumbo jumbo but basically it's a defective product it's a bad product people aren't getting what they thought they were getting. And um, under that particular set of laws, the defendant, if we succeed, would also have to pay for our attorney's fees. So the idea is to make our clients whole and then make Generac pay for us having to litigate the issue. And by the way, it's not an arbitrary number. The court, the court derives what that number is supposed to be. And it's based upon numerous different factors. Damn, do you guys ever get to decide what you're paid? I mean, you're capped here, you're capped there, told what you get here. Doesn't feel like it. <laughs> so since we're on the topic, um, if anybody is listening and anybody thinks they have a potential claim and are interested in learning more about it, they can go to generac.hmsfirm.com. Uh, if they want to share their information, that's an opportunity for them to share the information. We will contact them and uh, discuss whether or not they want to be a class member. Sounds good. Do you guys want to do some fun questions before we cut out, or are there other things that we should cover as it pertains to insurance? Uh, let's, let's, I think we've covered the waterfront, I think, on the insurance claims. Um, fun questions are always good. What you got? All right. Preston, I'll start with you. Who do you use for your insurance? What is the company? You know, I'd used State Farm for years, and uh, I grew up, buddy of mine, best friend. Uh, his dad was a State Farm insurance agent. Uh, you know, it was, he, State Farm was great, personal agent, you know, any problems you had, he lived right down the street. So, you know, I'm partial to State Farm because they've treated me right over the years. Again, my buddy's dad was the agent and he was, he's pretty Johnny on the spot when you have an issue. That's good. I think it matters more the agent rather than the company, don't you think? Yeah, at times, you know, and I'm not going to name, name names, okay, but I already know or I already believe I know who the bad actors are going to be from this uh, because you see it kind of time and time again, uh, the same names kind of pop up as the usual suspects. And by bad actors, he's not referring to a broker. He's referring to a company. Yeah, correct. Mm. Yeah, insurance carriers. I, I know which ones will likely give people trouble and which ones who, who I think, for the most part, will treat people fairly. Yeah. Are you in good hands with Allstate? <laughs> you know... Sometimes, sometimes not. Is social media a net 
This question's for you, David. Is social media a net positive or net negative for society? In my opinion, absolute negative. I think <laughs> it's, it, it's going to be the downfall of Rome. I don't know. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I stay away from all those things. There's a useful purpose for it. Uh, it is a great marketing tool. It is a great uh, opportunity for for individuals and society to share ideas and information. But for whatever reason, it seems that people think it's an opportunity to overshare. Uh, maybe I grew up in a different time and a different uh, different culture, but I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, David just got married recently, so he has no more use for social media. <laughs> You're not posting shirtless selfies anymore? Oh, no, I still do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. One of the great things we have seen about social media right now, for all of its downsides, is after a storm like this or an event like this, you're seeing Matt's former client and the person you had on the podcast and people like that. And I've seen countless other individuals. They're getting on there and using that as a way to communicate. And sometimes it's the only way they have to communicate. And they're organizing grassroots relief efforts to get food, supplies, gasoline, whatever people need to these hit areas. And sometimes that's the only way that that's getting organized. And We've seen individuals getting started before government sometimes, and social media, to its credit, has enabled that communication. I heard Gary V talk about one time how underpriced social media marketing is. Never in the history of the world have you been able to target specific demographics in the way that you can. Choose the age, choose the town. What would you pay for that? It, it's probably underpriced. And to think that prior to them only allowing 60 of your friends to see your stuff, everybody got to see your stuff. Everybody's like, how's Facebook going to monetize? They sure as hell figured it out. And it's, hey, you're going to get about 10% of your friends that see your stuff. You want your friends to see stuff? Pay us. Show me the money. That's right. There's no question about it. Matt, what is your favorite baseball or basketball card that you've ever owned? I know that I have multiple Chipper Jones cards, Will Clark cards, but if I had to have a favorite, I believe, just as me personally, the Griffey rookie card, I believe it was Topps. I think he has a hat backwards. Same era as McGuire. Those two come to mind to me that I know I could put my hands on immediately. I think I'm correct on what's on them. I think you're wrong about the brand. I think it was Upper Deck. Clear. Was it Upper Deck? Could be. Did they have the first baseline on the right corner? Yes. Yeah. Was it Fleer? That was his most popular. No, it was. It was. It was upper deck. Upper deck. That's right. Yeah, his most valuable rookie card was that. So that went in the tops, McGuire. Was that yeah. the wooden frame to yes. the card? Yes. And his his hat is like, you know, top of his head. That's not the one I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the one where you can see his back, and he's in the batter's box, number twenty five. No, that's different. not the one I'm thinking of. Okay. Preston. <laughs> Will, gotta be Will Clark, you know, local guy. You know, I grew up playing first base, left handed, and uh, that's the guy I looked at. He, he and, and Ken Griffey Jr., they're in the attic, but uh, I've still got them. Well, look, Griffey put the backwards hat in a baseball. Oh, There's no question about it. That yeah. became a thing with Griffey. People didn't like it at the time. Oh, no. It was, it was a traditional sport, and you needed to stick to the customs and norms of the sport. His swing, man. 
so pretty. My God. How cool is it right now to watch Vladdy's son play? Well, first of all, all of Toronto. You got yeah. Bichetti, Vladdy, Biggio. All this you're watching their kids play from when we were young. My makes you feel old, though, doesn't it? Well, it does, <laughs> but it, it reminds me how bad my memory is becoming. Mm. You know, like, I can remember those, that era, all those baseball players' statistics. And now life goes so fast, you don't remember any of it. But if you bring me back to that 6- to 12-year-old era, my God, there's things I can remember about baseball teams, who was on half the teams. I couldn't name 10 major league players now. There's a, a Simpsons episode where Bart talks about a 1971 Topps Carl Yastrzemski card with the sideburns. I actually have that card. It might be my favorite. But Yastrzemski is leading the Giants in home runs right now. He has something like 21 home runs, and that's not an easy park to hit home runs. Where the Giants play, AT and T, Pac Bell Park. What's that? They got the big glove in the outfield. Yes, it's awesome. Yeah, it's and on the once Bonds retired, people stopped hitting balls into <laughs> the right. water back there. <laughs> but that is a beautiful park. Have you been? I haven't. It's on the hit list. I'll get there. Now I get the distinct impression I'm the outsider here as the only non-baseball co- collegiate baseball player out well, here. Did you collect anything throughout your life? Did I collect anything? Uh, Coins, cars. Matt, you're a Jeopardy contestant. You get to choose the category for Final Jeopardy. What category are you choosing? Is travel a category? Foreign countries? Could be anything you want. I think at this point in my life, travel, a.k.a. foreign countries, fascinates me by far the most. Okay. I'd have lost money on that one. I was at fishing for Matt. I I would not have guessed travel either. David, final jeopardy, meaning you're going to be asked a question for all the marbles. What's your category of choice? I'd have to say history. History? Yeah. Not saying I'm any good at it. I'm just saying that would be my category. Preston? You know, best chance to actually answer the question correctly, sports. Sports? Although I do love history. History major in college, but I think sports is the best category for me. You want to play, my man? Sure. Uh, Probably something about computers. Okay. Each of you have $10,000 going into the final round of Jeopardy. But there's going to be four rounds. Each round will have a category that you've just chosen. So the first category will be travel. I want you guys to write down how much you're going to risk and hand this paper back to me. Name a former president of Zimbabwe. No chance. So just to give you some background, Zimbabwe had massive inflation, and if you go there, which I've been, they sell trillion-dollar bills on the street. They now go by the U.S. dollar, so it's just kind of a neat little souvenir to have. They're, of course, trying to sell them to you for like $10, and it's like, dude, that's worth not even a penny. So, all right, let me, I give up. Let me deduct. Uh, Mugabe is his name. I'm glad I didn't Does that guess. sound familiar? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you, though. On the tip of my tongue. The next category is history. So write down how much you're wagering on history. Name three countries that were part of the Soviet bloc. 
No I Bible. think we're all wrong, no? to be honest. Yeah, everybody was wrong. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> okay, everybody. Matt. That's you, pretty weak. What'd you risk yeah. on that one, Matt? Uh, 2500 2500 So you're down to 5000 yeah, earlier you asked me what I've collected in my life. It's it's gambling losses. <laughs> <laughs> we have two more categories, those being sports, and the last one was tech. Tech? Okay, sports. Uh, Matt, how much are you wagering? You can say it out loud. I'm going five. Five. How much are you wagering? I'll get zero points on tech, so I'm going to go 7,000. The rest of it on sports. Is going all all in. in. The question is, I asked this question on the last episode, who did Tom Brady back up in college? He also played baseball. Mm-hmm. He was, I believe, shortly after Josh Booty, who did the same thing or played the same position in baseball. Played third? Third base. It's not Todd Held. He was Tennessee. And that was the guess, by the way. Todd Helton. That was the yeah. my guest guest, Todd Helton. Drew Henson. There you Drew go. Yep. Henson. That's exactly right. Damn. That's a good question. Name a running back who played at Oklahoma State more than 20 years ago. Emmett Smith. No. Barry yeah. Sanders. Barry Sanders. Uh, Where did Emmett Smith play college Florida. ball? Florida. Florida. Yeah, yeah. Got that backwards. Where did Major Harris play? Texas? He was a quarterback at West Virginia. Name three players over seven foot four inches in basketball. Manute Bowl. Ming. Ming, Manute Bowl. Manute. And I'm out. Oh, uh, was it Keen? No, he was more like seven foot. Small guy. Nobody in the dream team was over seven four. Mm-mm. Well, I could ask some dream team questions if y'all want. The person, another one would be Sean Bradley from Brigham Young. The Dream Team played a scrimmage against an all-world college team. Who won that game and who was the point guard of the college team? Only thing I remember from a scrimmage of the Dream Team in, in a book that I read was they had one where Jordan and Magic went at it, and they said it was the most epic game of all time. College-wise, only reason I say Duke is because of – Shashetsky, but he was an assistant coach, right? But uh, was it North Carolina or was it Duke? I don't know. No, so it was a like an all star college team. Oh, okay. And the all star college team actually beat the dream team, but the coach daily threw the game because he wanted to let the guys know you can be beat. And so he didn't give Jordan a lot of minutes that game. <laughs> I was about to say, it was genius, and game? he didn't yeah. even he didn't even tell Shashetsky that that he was throwing the game, but he threw the game. Could you name every player on the James Dream Team? Oh yeah, backwards and forwards. So another star of that college team was Chris Weber. He pretty much oh. dominated that game, that scrimmage. In what city was it played? I didn't even know the game was played. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Like the uh, the Olympics that year. Was it Seoul? Mm-mm. Barcelona? Barcelona. Yeah. And if you go to Barcelona now, that beach area that's real nice, mm-hmm. that was all to prepare for 1992's Olympics. There was a guy who was able to get out of the bus and walk along Las Ramblas and not be detected. He was a dream teamer. Who was that guy? Got to be John Stockton. Got to be. 
That was him. And if not, it's Chris Mullen. It's one of the two. <laughs> Who was most pissed off for being left off of the Isaiah dream? Thomas. Yep. Still mad about it. He is. I would be too. Jordan hated him. In what year did Coach Chuck Daly die? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Any guesses? David, do you know? Oh, I'm still crying over John Daly dying. <laughs> <laughs> 2009. What school did David Robinson attend? Navy. What school did Tim Duncan attend? Wake Forest. There was a guard from France who said that he was inspired to play basketball watching the Dream Team. Who was that? Ginobili? No. Tony Parker. Mm. Magic Johnson retired on November 7th, 1991. What was his last game? Had to be the, the finals, right? Mm. Mm. No? Don't know. He played in the All-Star game, remember, and he lit it up and got the MVP? Uh, now that you say it, I do. Yeah. I'd never guessed Where did Larry that. Bird go to school? It was Indiana. Eastern Indiana. Indiana State. Indiana State. Who did he play against in the national championship? Isaiah. Magic. At Michigan ah, State. That's right. Wow. Yeah, I know that. Who did the Dream Team play in the finals? Spain? Nope. China? No. Yes. Croatia? <sighs> Somebody on that team died in an awful vehicle accident. Off, Who was that? Off of which team? Croatia? Of Croatia's. Was it Tony um, Kuklovic? No, Tony Kukoc, Kukoc was Croatian, but no, this guy. That's the only Croatian I know. His name was Drazen Petrovic, number three, little left-handed guard. <laughs> Never remember that in a million years. <laughs> I know it in the first place. You want me to keep going? I mean, <laughs> you're going to get so deep, you're going to lose me. 99.9% of people would never, ever know the answer to that question. Where did Scottie Pippen go to school? Oh, oh man. I'm going to ask one more, uh, and then the, the hamburgers are ready. So. I know this. I remember it was not a big school. It, it, it was He wasn't highly heralded coming out. Mm -mm. He was, but he wasn't. People saw the potential, but he truly blossomed after. Where was the college? It wasn't, Arkansas. Where? Arkansas. Arkansas. Hmm. Scotty Pippen didn't go to the University of Arkansas? No, you asked where it was. Oh, yeah, okay. Tiny school in Arkansas, like yeah. Monticello or something? No. Well, now you're confusing me. I, Josh Lusky went to Monticello. That's the only person I know he that did. went there. That's right. He went to Central Arkansas. Where did Charles Barkley go to school? Orbit. Yes. Would you rather win a national championship or a gold medal? National championship. Right now, a gold medal. I love to shove it up so many people's ass. How can people contact you online, Preston? Uh... PLH at HMSfirm.com. Matt? Matt at AMOTrialLawyers.com. Our Instagram handle, AMOTrialLawyers. Facebook, AMOTrialLawyers. Very good. Guys, I appreciate you being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, sir. Friends, thank you for tuning in. I never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Until next time. Thank you, folks. Thank you.